If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Ruth. I would tell you you need to turn to this chapter, but we're, we're going to kind of cover the book as we go through this, okay? Uh, today I want to share a message with you that is not at all the direction I wanted to go today, but it was where I felt like the Lord wanted us to go today. Uh, and so we're going to just jump right in. And the title of today's message is Hope in the Dark. Uh, hope, hope in the Dark. Because sometimes we can go through situations in life that make us feel like we've been left in the dark, amen? I've, I have observed and w walked with many of you through moments like that. Uh, Fran, it's so good to see you back. I hope you had a great time in Chicago, but welcome home. We're glad to have you back with us. Um, it's just the, the little things, you know, like from when she had her, her hip replaced and then her knee replaced, kind of that whole process of watching God's faithfulness it can be difficult. We all find darkness in life come at us in different ways, Amen. And it's in those moments that we've got to still dig deep to realize that there's hope that's there. And so as we look at the book of Ruth, we're going to see a lot of that. One of the things that I do not like in life is having to miss an OU football game. Yeah. Right? Now, many of you would say an OSU game, and that's perfectly fine too. The point is we can all, re we can all be on the same playing field, right? Because when it comes time for, for an OU game, and I, I'm an avid fan, I love to watch, I love to go to the stadium and be there for the games. But if I have to miss the game and have to get it on DVR, what happens every time you do something like that? S somebody ruins it, right? It doesn't matter how many announcements you make. Don't tell me I'm going to watch it later. Somebody's still going to ruin it, right? Happens every time. Inevitably, you find out, hey, you know what? They won. So you go home and you watch every play, even the big play that you were kind of dreading the outcome from, right? But if you find out that they lost, you don't want to go see that play on DVR over and over and over again, right? Kind of like a few years ago when OSU and OU played in the Bedlam Classic, it was in Norman, and we, we punted the ball, and uh, there was a penalty, and we tackled the guy, but he didn't score. And so we take the penalty, and instead of kicking it out of bounds, we kick it to the most dangerous return man in all of college football that year. Not Coach Stoops' finest moment, but again, we'll give him a break since he retired, okay? But we kick it to him again, and what happens? He returns it for a touchdown, ball game. That is not a play I ever want to see again. The thought of watching it on DVR over and never again. Had we won, I'd have gone back and watched it. Look at that guy. We tackled him. Yes, you know, we, we celebrate those moments. It's kind of the way it works, right? Uh, it, one of the things that happens when we do that, though, is, is we have hope when we know we win. There's hope. That, hey, it's going to turn out okay. That's kind of the way the book of Ruth is. It gives this hopeful glimpse of what's going to happen, of what's yet to come in the middle of a really terrible, gloomy segment of Israel's history. Ruth, the book of Ruth pops up and says, hey, you win. It's going to be okay. You win. Incidentally, in the book of Ruth, it's the very first time that the word hope is introduced in the entire uh, segment of Scripture up to that point. The very first time. There was no hope given in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through until we get to the book of Ruth. There was no hope that was there. The difference between hope and the way we understand it and the way the Bible actually um, means it is we hope that something's going to happen that we don't really think can, right? For instance, I hope you win the lottery. It's good hope, right? How many of you think that's actually going to happen? No. Chances are minuscule at best, terrible at worst, that you're ever going to win that thing. But I, but I hope you do. My wife hopes that we're going to have another baby. No, no. 
Not going to happen, right? Hope, hope in the Bible is an assurance of something that's going to happen but just hasn't happened yet. That's the hope that Ruth has. It's certain that God is going to do it. Just hasn't kind of come to pass just yet. This is the setting that we find this, this in, right? Because it's a terrible time in Israel's past. It's a terrible time in their story. At the end of Joshua, uh, the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua tells the children of Israel before he dies, listen, here's the problem with you people. You're never going to stick to the promises that God made. You're never going to stay with the covenant. You're never going to fulfill it. And it's because of that you're going to end up in worse shape. And that's exactly what happened. Sure enough, they don't. They don't fulfill God's law. The book of Judges comes immediately following Joshua, and it traces this continual cycle of disobedience and idolatry and enslavement and repentance and deliverance. And every cycle seems to get worse until finally the children of Israel just seem to be much worse in much worse shape than even the people they ran out of the country in the first place. They're living in the promised land, and yet there's no promise seeming to be found, and that's where Ruth takes place. So in the book of Ruth, we're going to be reading out of the NLT, and we're going to pass through a bunch of scripture here, but it'll be on the screens to follow along. The story of Ruth takes place in those dark days, right after the story of Samson, when things seemed just as bad as they could be. So in Ruth chapter 1, it says, In those days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. Now, catch that, okay? Before we move on, catch that. He takes his family from the promised land to live in Moab, a place that was cursed ancestrally. I mean, it goes way back to Lot. And an incestuous relationship, that's where the people of Moab came from. They're cursed. And he takes his family to live in a cursed land instead of remaining in the promised land, trusting that God was going to see it through. And we sometimes have a tendency to do that. We sell God short on his ability to fulfill his promise in the long run because he hasn't done what we wanted him to do in the short term. And that's where we find Abimelech in that very moment. Verse 2, the, man, the man's name was Elimelech. And his wife was Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, which in the Hebrew just cracks me up because it literally means sickly and spent, okay? Because that's easier to say. That's what I'll refer to them as as we go, okay? Sickly and spent. He takes their two sons, verse 3, then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with sickly and spent, her two kids. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a, a lady named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the other married a lady named Ruth. Again, catch that, completely violating the covenant that God made with them. They're not supposed to marry foreign women. And what do they do? They marry them off to foreign pagan women who worship other gods. Again, directly forbidden by God. But, but catch this, okay? But about 10 years later, both sickly and spent died. It doesn't surprise me at all, right? They were sickly and spent. Death seemed imminent from the very time that they were born. It seemed like that would be their outcome. Then Naomi uh, is left alone without her two sons and, or her husband. Naomi heard about in Moab that the Lord had blessed the people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave for Moab to return to, their, to her homeland. But on the way, Naomi said to her two, two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. Skipping down to verse 14, And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. In verse 16 gives best, the best summation of what the gospel conversion should look like I've ever read. 
Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's what conversion, Christian conversion should be all about. I'm not turning back. I'm not going back to where I was. I am staying on this road forever and forever and ever. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to go back among my people. I'm going to stay where God wants me to stay, go where he wants me to go, be who he wants me to be. His people are going to be my people. That's what makes the church family so important. It's what makes gathering together as a church family so important. We need each other. We're family. It's the way it's supposed to work. Verse 18, Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her. She said nothing more, so the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited at their arrival. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, they're both widows. They're back living in the land of of Israel. They're living in Bethlehem. Um, So they do what every poor person did at that time, right? Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. Here's why this is so important, okay? Because God's always had a plan to take care of poor people, right? Scripturally, there was always a plan. His plan was found in Leviticus 23, 22, because it says there that those who are reaping are only to pass through the fields once harvesting the grain and anything they dropped or couldn't carry out their first time, they had to leave it and not go back and clean it up because that's God's plan. The generosity of his people was the plan to take care of those around them who were poor. That's the way God envisioned it. So Ruth did what she was supposed to do in Israel at the time, went out and gathered grain as a poor person. Verse 3, so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it just, insert there, just so, as it just so happened, just, just so happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law Elimelech, who was Naomi's deceased husband. Just so happened. You're going to find that phrase a lot in the book of Ruth as you were to read it. Just, it just so happened. First, I want to say a couple of things here. I want to say this. Boaz is a relative, saying that he's a relative is a really good thing for them because it meant there was somebody who could look out for them. Don't you love it when your family steps in and says, hey, you need to know this or let me help you out? Have you ever had a family member bail you out? You know, when, whenever I've had a flat tire, not me, but other people, because I can change my own tire, so that's a bad analogy. Whenever I've wrecked my car, because I have done that, I remember as a 19-year-old kid, I wrecked my car going down 119th Street. I accidentally caught the curb while I was reaching for a napkin as allergy season was in full blown. I reached to grab a napkin and pulled the car into the curb, and it broke everything, completely totaled the car, unbelievable single car crash experience I've ever had in my life. You know what I do? I reach for my cell phone. Back then, it looked like a brick you're holding up to your head. You guys wouldn't understand any of this. Like, I could give analogies for you teenagers, but it wouldn't make any sense, right? Like, if I said it looked like a Zach Morris phone, everybody my age is going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, we get that. You guys are going to go, who is Zach Morris? Saved by the bell? Yes. Yes, I have one among them. All right. Everybody else, think of this giant brick you held up to your ear, right? It'd be like this bottle of water. Hello? Yeah, that's kind of the way it was. Huge, right? And before that, it was a huge, huge bag you hung over your shoulder. The very first time I ever met Pastor Mike at Crossroads, literally, I walked into the sanctuary for youth convention. My dad and, and Mike played college football together. And what is Mike carrying? This gigantic purse. Except it wasn't a purse. You know what it was? It was his cell phone. Okay, I mean, does that thing cost you like $10 a minute to make a phone call? It probably was. I have no idea. But 
That's the way it was. So, so when I had a single car crash, the first thing I did was I picked up my phone and called my dad. And what did my loving father say? Why did you call me? I'm an hour and a half away. Call somebody closer. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, so I hang up from him, and I call my friend Dan Barrick, and I say, Dan, I've had a wreck. Where are you at? I'm on my way. It was just two miles around from the house. I was living with them at the time, so he comes over. Oh, goodness, here's what we'll do. And I'm thinking, well, it probably won't be a big deal, and come to find out it was a huge deal. Having a family member close is a good thing, right? They help, they cover, they, they can pull you out of things. It was a good thing. Plus, this is where it gets a little bit weird. This was a signal to the Jewish audience that romance was afoot when you read that. That's not the way it is today to say that, hey, she's your cousin. It's not a romantic thing unless maybe your family's still from the eastern hills of Arkansas, but that's a different story. In Jewish literature at this point, that, that was what it was, okay? Secondly, the phrase, it just so happened, gets repeated a lot in this book with intended irony. She just so happened to stumble upon this particular field. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's like the stuff that you hear, see in a movie, right? Where it's like you're sitting there, you finally give in, man. Come on, you, you can feel me on this. You finally give in, you're watching a chick flick. And there's that one moment in the movie where all of a sudden the storyline changes because of this one outlandish, ridiculous thing that never happens except in the movies happens, right? And so we're sitting there, we're going, oh, are you kidding me? Ugh, give me the barf bag, right? Because there's just no way this Lifetime movie is real. It can't happen that way. You know, you know what I'm saying? So what do we do? We turn to tell our wives and point out the absolute absurdity of this moment only to see, her tea, see a tear streaming down her cheek as she sniffles. Oh, it is so sweet. And so what do you say? Oh, baby. You, find, you muster the inner strength not to tell her how stupid this moment is. Instead, you muster the strength to say, praise the Lord, isn't God good? He's our provider, woo right? You, know, you muster something, right? That, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, in this moment, this is exactly what happens. It's one of those moments, a, a totally random coincidence but it all, it's all being woven together by a sovereign God. And that's the thing I want us to see, right? Because that's what happens here. There's no dramatic miracles in the entire book. Just sovereignly controlled circumstances. Because both are ways that God intervenes in our lives. Both are ways that God works supernaturally in our world. Amen? God, God can do a miracle. How many of you have ever experienced a miracle? I want to see your hand raised up. Have you experienced a miracle in your life? By the way, if you've been saved, that's the first miracle. But beyond that, have you experienced a miracle? Okay, we, we've all been there. Here's the other thing. Have you ever had God divinely control a circumstance you never saw coming? Anybody ever been there? I've been there. That's, God works in both of those ways supernaturally in our world to go, hey, listen, I'm at work here. Don't bother. It's kind of like a wet paint sign. We always want to go stick our finger in it. But if you don't know it's wet paint, you leave it alone. Sometimes God does that. Because maybe you've heard it said this way, coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous. Sometimes we think, well, that, how did that happen? It's just God working. Don't worry about it. Same thing happens here. Verse 4, let's continue. While she was there, Boaz arrived. Again, in this part of the, of the story, you would cue the romantic music, okay? Beth, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem. Now, Boaz in Hebrew means strength. In other words, he was a man's man. He came in riding on a horse with a huge cape hanging off the back, and the wind was blowing his hair perfectly in place. You know, kind of like I just did there. You just a perfect... No I, didn't, no, I didn't do that. But still, you get the picture, right? He, he was not some sissified human being coming in. He, 
I'm not even going to go there because I don't want to offend anybody. But that's the way it was, okay? He was a man's man. He was a strong man. And he was wealthy. His brother owned all of the fields around there. That's who he was. He owned everything in the, the area. Everybody was working for him. And, and, and when I say he's not, he's rich, I mean, like, everybody wanted to see him, right? So, so he comes in, and, and Boaz says he, says he greets the harvesters and says, the Lord be with you. And they all replied in unison, no, the Lord be with you, Boaz. Come on, think about it like a movie, like one of those, really, that happened? Yeah, that really kind of happened. That's what the scenario is. It's not like, you know, at, at your workplace where when the boss walks in, everybody goes, oh, Lord Jesus, help us. Okay? I mean, this is like, you know, Boaz comes in and everybody's like, hey, hey, I like that guy. And everybody in unison said, we like that guy. That's the way it worked. Verse 5, Boaz goes over to the foreman and he asks him, hey, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? Now, if you underline anything in your Bible at all, underline who is, does she belong to. That is the crux, the main question in the entire book. That's the main plot of the storyline. Who does she belong to? Who is, whose is she fundamentally? Is she mainly a Moabite to be despised? Is she mainly a, a stranger? Is she damaged goods? Which is how the culture would have seen her as a widow, damaged goods, because to a Jewish audience, she had three strikes against her. First of all, she was a Moabite, which the Jews regarded as a cursed people. I mentioned earlier, the Moabites were descendants of that incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Everybody just say gross. Okay, that's the way it works, okay? Secondly, she's a widow, which meant she would have been regarded as used goods. Third, she's poor, which they saw as a sign of God's judgment. That's, that's where she was at. Plus, there's no way she looked that good. She's digging, I mean, literally, she's dumpster diving in the weeds looking for food to take home to her mother-in-law. Think about it. She's dirty, she's grimy, she's got it all over her, and you're just going, there's no way. He's looking at her going, who is that? <laughs> Not, mm-mm. But, that's exactly what happens, right? This is not how you want a guy to, to meet a girl. Like, like, I have a daughter. And right now, I am perfectly fine with her doing all of those gross, vulgar things that her brothers do, and that's perfectly fine. Because that means none of the boys are ever going to show up. And the ones that do, I'm just going to shoot on sight. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just going to be the way that it works. This is not, not what happens. So if, if you're a girl and you want to meet Mr. Right, this ain't the way to do it. You don't want to have oily, oily skin and grinding. Like, like if, if a girl is going to meet Mr. Right, that moment's happening. They disappear upstairs for like four hours, and there's all the sandblasting and, sand, uh, uh, and paint spraying that goes on, and they come down this unbelievable image of who they are, and you're like, wow, that's what happens. That, not dumpster diving for food going, hey, I'm going to pick up... That guy. Now, it doesn't happen, but that's what happens. Going on in the story, verse 8, Boaz tells her, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go any, to any other field. That's kind of like an Old Testament pickup line of like, hey, baby, I'll leave some extra grain for you. <laughs> for real? I mean, seri seriously, that's what we've got here? That is the worst one I have ever heard. And yet, Verse 10 tells us, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. It worked. If you're single, let me just give you a little biblical context there. You might give it a try. I don't know. I'm not giving dating advice today. We're going to get to the gospel through this. Watch. Then he says to her, 
He continues with verse 9, I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. In other words, he's telling them, hey, listen, I went to all the guys and told them to leave you alone. I told them if they mess with you to remember that I own all of the fields and their family will never find where they got buried. Okay? I mean, he's serious about this, okay? Then he says, and when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water that we've drawn from the well. Guys, I want you to realize how huge this is. A Moabite woman, if she were allowed in the presence of Jewish men, would have been treated as a slave. And he's not telling her, listen, when the guys show up, go get them water. He's saying, we're going to treat you like family, and you can have whatever we have. Whatever is ours is yours. Help yourself to it. That's amazing when you see this, right? Boaz says, don't be a servant. Your family will serve you. Verse 14, he says, at mealtime, Boaz called her, come over here, help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. This is kind of like getting an appetizer or going for a coffee date for a first date. So she sat with the harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all that she wanted and still had left, uh, room left over. Still had some left over. Verse 18, skipping on down. She carried what was left and all that she had gathered that day back into town, showing it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left from her meal. Where did you gather all of this, Naomi says? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. She realized, girl, this is not normal. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Let me pause right here and interject this. In the midst of whatever dark moment, dark situation you're going through, when God provides, you'll look around and go, where in the world did this come from? I never expected this. Hang in there. In the end, you win. Verse 20, uh, or there in verse 19, she told her about the man who, field she'd worked in. The very last sentence, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. Verse 20, may the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he's showing his kindness to you as well as your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now, family redeemer, that's an interesting term, and it's a really important term. Because in those days, if you were in debt, you would, you would mortgage off your property and deed it out to somebody in order to pay off those debts. Similar to what we do today. But here's the way it was a little bit different. You had the right to buy it back at any time. You just had to have the money, okay? Not only that, but a close family member could do that for you. But they had to be a close relative, so they had to have, uh, uh, they had to have the right to do it. Secondly, they had to have the resources. So they had to have the money to be able to pay off the debt. And thirdly, they had to have the resolve. They'd have the want to. Boaz is a relative, he's wealthy, but does he have the resolve? And the answer to that is yes. Look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, Naomi tells her, do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, dress in the nicest clothes, go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go uncover his feet and lie down there. He'll tell you what to do. Verse 7, after Boaz had finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Ruth came and quietly uncovered his feet and, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Well, duh. Right? You know what? I had a similarly shocking moment this morning at 1.15 as I rolled over and there lay our three-year-old in bed behind me. I was like, where did you come from? 
I scared daddy fireworks. You know, he heard thunder or something and off to our bed he came. And the rest of the night spent it kicking me in the back trying to get me out of my spot in my bed. Boaz wakes up and he's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? In this context, this was the equivalent to a marriage proposal. She's saying, hey, listen, now the Bible's full of great advice. Girls, don't ever try this one. Mm-mm. Bad idea. Your daddies will kill him. And I don't want him to come after me either. Okay? So don't do it. All right? This, again, was interpreted as a, a marriage proposal, a request. Boaz takes her up on it. In chapter 4, he finds out who the guy is that is actually a closer family member. He does his research and finds out there's somebody that's closer, finds out there's somebody who's closer, and he goes to the city gate to wait for him. And verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Just then the, the family redeemer Boaz mentioned came by. Now let me point out, his, his name is never mentioned, never once, not ever, because of a lack of generosity on his heart. Okay? When Boaz sees him, he explains the situation in verse 4. He says, the man says, I will redeem it. He tells him everything that's going on. This guy's thinking, hey, I'll get some land out of this. Okay, I can have all of Elimelech's land. I can buy it. I've got the resources, no problem. Uh, because, you know, they're not going to make any more land. That's a good buy, right? But Boaz very, very, very smartly, very deftly says, well, here's the deal in verse 5. If you take the land, you also, you also have got to take his Moabite woman and her mother-in-law. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, that guy ain't dumb, right? What he's saying is, hey, listen, you can have the, ha the land, but, but you get the cranky old lady who lives on the second floor. And the guy says, oh, I'll pass. No, thanks. I pass. I'm out. I just prayed about it. And you know what? I feel like the Lord has something else for me. Nope. He moves on. Boaz marries Ruth. Uh, they live happily ever after, but that's not even the best part of the story. Because the best part of the story starts in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, took her home, they be, uh, became husband and wife. She had a child. She gave birth to a son. Naomi took the baby, cuddled him. She cared for him as if she, he was her own. And verse 17 says, the neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. We get this really sweet picture of Naomi and Obed and God saying in the midst of this, uh, Naomi saying, God is alive. He's let me hold my grandson. God has redeemed me. He has redeemed my family, restored our inheritance, turned my bitterness back into sweetness. Look what God has done. But that's still not the best part because the end of verse 17 is the best part because it says that he became, Obed became the father of Jesse the grandfather of David. I know I've spent a long time telling you the story of Ruth. If nothing else, I want you to get the next three or four minutes of what I'm about to say. Because this is where hope shines in the darkness. Because you see, Jesse had a bunch of kids, right? One day God tells Samuel, hey, I'm going to start a new era. I want you to go and anoint a new king. And it's one of Jesse's sons. So he goes over 
And he wants everybody to understand that in that moment, I'm about to begin this whole new thing. It's going to have ramifications for thousands of years. In fact, the people in Oklahoma City right now in, in, in July the 1st, 2018, are going to be affected by the fact that Obed was alive and that he gave birth to Jesse, who gave birth to David, who's going to become the king. It's important that you do what I tell you. Now, now, guys, listen, if a man shows up at your house and says, hey, one of your sons is going to be the king, you're going to bring them all in. And that's what happens. He was excited. He brings in his boys. And Samuel is thinking, hey, great, this one. Nope, 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 nope. Hey, Jesse, where's your other kid? There's got to be one missing. God doesn't lie. And he said one of them is going to be the son. And he's rejected all of these. Oh, yeah, we've got one more, but he's out tending the sheep. What am I supposed to do with him? Go get him. And that's what he does. He goes and gets him, brings him in, and onto the pages of history walks David. Years go by, and another prophet, Nathan, comes, comes to David and says, your house and kingdom will endure forever, and your throne will be established forever and ever. And so from that point forward, the Israelites waited for the Messiah to come because they knew it would come from David. And so David had a son who has a son who has a son, and 25 pregnancies later... Or to use biblical terms, 25 begots later, Jesus is born. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Ruth, who was born in Bethlehem, the city of Naomi. Yeah, it's referred to as the city of David, but let me tell you, had God not been faithful to Naomi and faithful to Ruth and faithful all the way through, there never would have been a David to be alive for that moment to have happened. What may seem like a terrible moment to you and, and like an unsurmountable moment in your life, God can shine the light right in the midst of it and take that dark moment and say, baby, I'm alive and I can give life to this moment. I can bring life where there was death. I can take what you thought was done and make it live again. Because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's our Boaz. Jesus can reach in because he has the right. He has the resources and he has the resolve. He paid the price to redeem us. He paid the price for us to be his child. He paid the price because we are his. He had the right because he is our relative. He was born of a woman. He had the resources because he was without sin, with power over death. And he had the resolve because he said, I'll undergo the curse of death for them. No matter what you're facing, God's on your side today. The book of Ruth sums up the whole gospel. The whole gospel is put on display right in front of our very eyes. Do you see how beautifully this gives us a picture of who Jesus is? And by the way, this convinces me even more, even more, that this is not just some book of stories. It's not a book of tales, but it is the written word of God. The written word. If I were going to preach the next 10 pages of notes I have, and I'm not going to. The thing I'd want you to hear the most is that those who've been affected or redeemed by the gospel are to represent the gospel. See, today, I believe there's many of you today that if you're honest, you're facing a dark moment. You need hope. Oh, if I could tell you stories of just your friends sitting next to you. See, here's the thing. Just because you don't know 
doesn't mean that they're not going through it. You have no idea who needs hope. Our church is in the middle of one of the worst neighborhoods in Oklahoma City. Drug dealers abound. You know what God wants to create in us? Hope dealers. (laughs) I don't know what you're facing. But let me tell you, in the midst of the darkest moment of Ruth and Naomi's life, you know what they found? Hope. That's who Jesus is. With every head bowed and every eye closed, please, for just a moment. If you're here today and you would say, Pastor, that's me. I'm in, I'm in the dark. I've got a dark moment of my life going on, and I need hope. I need I need Jesus to step in and redeem. It may not seem like it's going to come to pass, but friend, let me tell you that he is your hope. He is your redeemer. He is your savior. He is your kinsman redeemer who has the right, the resources, and the resolve to bring you out of it. If you're here today and you say, that's me, pastor, I need hope, put your hand up. If you need hope because you're going through a dark moment, put your hand up and keep it up for just a second. Come on. If you need hope, I want to see your hand because I want to know where you're at. I want you to be honest with where you're at. Now, if you've got one hand up, I want you to put the other one up because if you want to find hope, you've got to come to a place of worship where you say, Jesus, you're bigger than my problem. Jesus, you are bigger than everything I'm facing. No matter how dark it is, when I get my hands up, the light appears because that's who Jesus is. He draws near to us when we draw near to him. So keep your hands up and worship the living God. He is yours. You are his. He's got what you need. Jesus, you see every hand. You see every hand across this room. You see every life represented by these uplifted hands. You see the darkness that they're facing. And God, today I pray that you would bring hope, that you would speak hope in the midst of their situation, that you would speak hope into their life, that you would speak hope into what they're facing. Jesus, speak hope. Redeem, bring out, bring the resources necessary because you have the resolve and the right. Bring the resources necessary to pull them out. God, I pray today, let the goodness of God be put on display. Goodness of God. Now, if you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I'm I'm not where I need to be with the Lord. I've allowed sin to separate me from God for too long. And if that's you, would you slip up a hand? today. You're ready to come home, okay? Who else? Come on, Jesus is going to reach you today. If you've got sin that's separating you from Jesus and you just want to come home, come back to him. Anybody else, just slip up your hand. All right. There were hands that went up across the room. I want everybody to, I want everyone to pray this prayer with me. Just repeat it so you can hear yourself, okay? Jesus, I ask you to forgive me today. Wash away my sins. Make me yours. I ask today that you would be my redeemer, my savior, and the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now now listen, if you raise your hand, you prayed that prayer, guess what? The Bible says immediately you're saved. You have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, you're saved. 
You've got to put it into practice. We have uh, classes on Sunday mornings, uh, Nina teaches an adult uh, Bible study. We have youth classes. We've got stuff going on that will help you follow Jesus. You have to take the next step. You have to show the initiative to get involved. That class happens at 9 uh, o'clock down the hall and and over in the annex for the teenagers. Guess what? We have something to help you Wednesday nights. I know we're off this Wednesday. It's a holiday. Have fun with your family. But you've got to take the initiative. Here's the next thing. The Bible says if if any of you are sick, need prayer to call for the elders of the church to pray the prayer of faith, lay hands on you, and the the, the sick among you be made well. That's what James chapter 5 says. We put that into practice every service, right? In just a moment, our elders and prayer team, they're going to make their way down around these altars. We're going to agree with you for God's best to be yours for healing. If you need prayer for anything, we want to invite you to come. They're going to begin to sing this song because God is faithful, amen?